0: This week on The Futurists, Bill Bahein. You have two people in the United States that make the vast majority of the decisions on what your money is worth tomorrow. That's insane. Okay. And by the way, they're getting it wrong time after time.
1: Welcome back to the Futurists. This week we are going to get into the whole crypto stuff. I'm joined, of course, by my uh, wonderful, intelligent co-host Rob Turs. Okay, hey, Rob. Hey, how you doing, Brett? Uh, you know, it's uh, I'm actually in Dubai as we're recording this today, and uh, which is it's uh, it's pretty. You know, it's a big crypto hub, of course. Yeah. Um, you know, the the um, it, particularly Abu Dhabi has really sort of doubled down on the sort of crypto community and there is a big crypto community here um, in Dubai a lot I've actually got friends that have you know crypto friends that have moved here relocated to Dubai because they see it as very pro friendly um, yeah. space so um but uh you know I've been here uh, working with some of the big banks and talking to Samer in 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 the kingdom and stuff and um there's a lot of really interesting energy and stuff going on here so um cool and they're trying to be, pivot away from oil right oh uh, yeah yeah i think uh generally speaking i mean um You know, MBS, uh, you know, on the the Saudi side has this big 2030 plan that he's pushing. You've got Neom, um, you know, the city of the future, the line, of course. Um, But, you know, as well as that, you've got Qatar, who's invested a ton in infrastructure for the World Cup. Of course, Dubai and Abu Dhabi, um, you know, have have done some incredible things over the last few years. But there's all sort of a healthy... um, competition between all of these yeah. players as well as uh, in this but i think um the changes that have happened in saudi you know that my first time to visit saudi was was many years ago but the changes are there are um enormous and i know you know saudi gets a bad rap but um you know they have made some extraordinary progress over the last few years but let's welcome our guest hey so we but before that actually actually you know before we get to to bill um uh, uh just uh let's let's tackle the uh the news what have you got uh on the news from the future this week all right the news from the future
2: this week we uh selected a few headlines from the cryptocurrency world why not it's in the news and there's a lot happening and seemed relevant for today's show sam bankman freed the founder of ftx uh that recently collapsed uh, he's in the news again. So he postponed his testimony. He was invited by Maxine Waters, who's the chairwoman of the House uh, Financial Services Committee, uh, to testify in a House hearing on December 13th. Uh, but he can't find time to do that. However, he did find time to participate at New York Times uh, Deal Book Summit recently, uh, where he made the cryptic statement, I didn't ever try to commit fraud. So we'll watch that space. That story's going to keep going on and it'll be full of interesting turns and twists, no doubt about it. Uh, one that happened today, Senator Elizabeth Warren has sent a letter uh, demanding information from Silvergate uh, about FTX. Silvergate is one of the few U.S. banks that allows customers to transfer U.S. dollars into crypto exchanges. And both FTX and Alameda Research and several of the related companies had accounts at Silvergate. Um, about 20 accounts. And so uh, Senator Warren's demanding answers about that from from the bank um, because she's trying to track down the $10 billion that went missing. As as you may recall, um, $10 billion of customer funds were transferred from the FTX exchange to the related firm Alameda Research, uh, which looks like it was making investments and playing both sides of the table and so forth. So there's a real problem there. And it looks like uh, Silvergate may have facilitated that. That's what the letter from Senator Warren alleges. Uh, It appears Silvergate facilitated the transfer of FTX customer funds to Alameda. Um, In other news, uh, arrest warrants were sent out for Terraform Labs co-founder Daniel Shin, three of his his investors, and four of his engineers. Uh, This is the group that created the cryptocurrencies Terra, USD, and Luna that collapsed spectacularly a few months back. And the Three Arrows founders, Uh, this is another firm that collapsed based in Singapore. Uh, These folks have resurfaced this week in Bali. Interestingly Bali's in Indonesia, which is a jurisdiction that does not have an extradition treaty with the United States. Uh, So they just happen to be in Bali uh, when everyone's trying to find these two guys. Uh, Three Arrows has not cooperated with investigators who are trying to find information uh, related to the bankruptcy of that firm. They're based in Singapore and three billion dollars has gone is gone missing. So three billion dollars is owed to creditors. Uh, Meanwhile, those guys are relaxing on the beach. In spite of all this crazy shenanigans uh, that are happening and the spectacular levels of fraud that have been revealed in the last couple of months, BlackRock's Charlie Fink says that the technology behind cryptocurrency remains relevant for the future, and he says that he says he's supportive despite the, what he calls uh, misbehavior by uh, Sam Friedman, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, and it, Reuters announced today that Goldman Sachs intends to invest tens of millions of dollars into cryptocurrency startups. Uh, So clearly there remains interest in the space, uh, despite all the hiccups, craziness, and chaos that's occurred. So those are the headlines from the future. Yeah. And now let's turn it over to our guest, Bill Barhide. Bill, such a great pleasure to reconnect with you. Thanks for joining us on The Futurists. Uh, Thanks,
0: Robert. Good to see you,
2: Brett. Yeah, great to be here. Welcome, Bill. Yeah. So Bill, for folks who aren't familiar with you and ABRA, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what you're doing? What is ABRA? How'd you get started? What brought you to that space? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm a long time
0: uh, technology entrepreneur. Uh, kind of a mixed background and working in both capital markets, as well as early internet technology, uh, all, all the way back to uh, early '90s, and and so. Uh, via many many uh, permutations of working on payments companies um, and developing markets projects in in remittances, money transfer, microfinance. I, I became super excited about this this movement towards integrating software and decentralization finally into money in the banking system, which is what got me really excited about about bitcoin when it first was launched uh, you know now over 10 years ago i can't believe it's been over 10 years but but yeah i i was working in frontier markets on building payments and and remittances and and other Basically, financial products in places like Mexico, Philippines, Haiti, Central America, Southeast, you know, other parts of Southeast Asia, India, uh, even China. And, and, And basically, you know, was running into brick wall after brick wall, you know, dealing with the incumbent banks who were disincentivized to work with the bottom of the pyramid or even the lower middle part of the pyramid for that matter. Uh, to regulators, who you know, you've seen the memes lately, probably. Oh, well, they'll check the six hundred dollar transaction from Venmo, but you know, the the senators can basically you know invest in whatever they want with no disclosures, et cetera, et cetera. So, so it's it's like that, but like times a million, right? So everything you do has a roadblock, regardless of who you're trying to help. Uh, even if you're a nonprofit, we I wasn't running a nonprofit. We actually had a nonprofit arm as well, but but it doesn't really matter. It's just roadblock roadblock after roadblock. So when the Bitcoin white paper came out, you know, I, I had been part of the cypherpunk community in, in the 90s that had looked at myriad, um, um, you know, e-money schemes. And the holy grail question for e-money since the beginning was, can you eliminate Centralized trust and end or solve the double spend problem, which is really part and parcel to the same problem. The double spend problem was basically: can you um, can two people have a copy of the same money or key in this case, and 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 not have
2: both people be able to spend? The same money, which is the double spend problem. Right. And, because it's so easy to copy a digital file on the internet, right? right? Basically the internet's a copying machine. Exactly. So that's the problem. That's the core problem. People forget yeah. that they were trying to solve that back, you know, things like digital gold back oh, in, the, in the 1990s. It's yeah. a long time ago. Well,
1: you had, you know, there were, there were some of these formative cryptocurrencies, even if you discount things like Elon Musk and so forth, yeah. you had QQ coins in China, yeah. you had second Life with Linden dollars. There were yeah. proto, yeah. proto crypto, yeah. you know, in those days. 90s. Yeah, exactly. But, but
0: they all basically had some component of centralized trust yeah. in the system with an off switch, and right, that's what's right. the test for decentralized systems, right? I look at it like uh, BitTorrent, right? You know, they ask the uh, RIAA where the off switch is for BitTorrent, and they will tell you there is none, and and suing people doesn't actually manifest an off switch, and and so but that like i said that was the holy grail if you eliminate the double spend problem you've also eliminated the off switch in theory and 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 we thought that problem couldn't be solved and i think in hindsight i know why we thought the problem couldn't be solved once you see a, a viable solution and that is you know bitcoin is is clearly not created by an academic because you the idea of using every computer in the world to create a decentralized solution is is orthogonal to the way any academic would think right it's not there's nothing elegant about it it's the most inefficient transaction <laughs> processing system ever devised by man but it turns out if you want to solve the double spend problem you have to rethink your requirements right yeah. which is why we have this argument now between proof of work and proof of stake and all these other technologies because what we're, what really matters is decentralization and and security when it comes to eliminating uh, uh, centralized trust, and which which ultimately usually means governments, central banks, and, and and things like that. So when I saw this, after having hit roadblock after roadblock for all these years for the different projects I was working on, even going back to my Netscape days when you worked on SSL, if you understand how HTTPS works, even though it's an encrypted connection, the trust actually rolls uphill. Meaning there's settings in the browser to determine whether or not that that secure connection you have is truly secure. Mm. and There's what we call root authorities, you know, which sounds very ominous, at the top of the chain that determine who you trust. So even with encryption on the internet for how you process credit cards, you're actually trusting someone in that kind of encrypted connection. Some and higher authority. A, a higher
2: authority. That's exactly yeah. what it so is. So it's a mind hierarchical mind. system. It's baked uh, into the internet. It's also the like DNS, the same thing. Like, yeah, even it, internet, yeah. in theory, it's decentralized, uh, but yeah. DNS is highly centralized. Uh, highly centralized. Yeah. It, al- it remains the ultimate attack vector for, for the internet.
0: So this idea that you could have money that the more it got used, the more decentralized it becomes, the more previous trend more secure earlier transactions actually become was was mind-blowing to me like I how you know uh, like I said it was so inefficient in how in its design relative to you know centralized databases that it was obvious that no academic would ever come up with this yeah. but it turns out that it's the only solution that we've ever been able to come up with and and, and may actually be the only solution to the problem anyway I was all in and I said, this has got to be the future of money. And then the question becomes around it, what's the future of banking? Right? Because, because on its surface, what Bitcoin does is eliminates the need for trusting a central bank to make the right decisions, trusting governments and central banks to create money out of thin air, eliminates the need for us to have to use gold rocks as, as the basis for uh, a trusted monetary system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But around that, that money, we've built a banking system. Mm-hmm. Right. Most people have no idea how the banking system works, right? They question crypto. But then, you know, ask the average congressperson what a repo is in, in, in a bank and how money markets actually work. And you probably get a blank stare. Right. And, and, and so then the question becomes, OK, can we do better? Right, and you've probably heard your audience right, probably heard these acronyms DeFi. Uh, obviously, now everybody knows what a stablecoin is, and and these things are basically being built out via this equivalent decentralized stack to replace now the banking system, the same way Bitcoin is 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 proposing to uh,
2: completely change money on its head. And and I well, like well, some, I some things. Let's recap a few things because you covered an awful lot. That's quite yeah, interesting. Sure. Um, the first thing is the banking system is highly centralized, and we see evidence of that all the time. For instance, uh, the sanctions against Russia that the United States imposed. You know, even the United States government can basically decide to cut a, a country off from the banking system. Okay, canceled will. the country in 12 hours. That's right. And so there's an example of decentralization. Now, you know, a lot of folks might support that, people who are supporters of Ukraine and so forth, but it does illustrate a kind of a risk in the global that's system not, yeah, that that's not one the country can make that call. That's right. Um, the second idea there is that we often hear Bitcoin um, and, and blockchain in general, the blockchain that under underlies the Bitcoin, but not, not just Bitcoin, all the blockchains that use um, proof of work. We often hear the complaint that they're inefficient, that they're grossly inefficient, right? What people don't realize is that's not a mistake. That's not a blunder. That's yeah. not a side effect. That's by design. That's baked in. That's the security model. That's intentional. Right. Uh, that inefficiency makes it incredibly impractical for someone to try to hack the whole network. Uh, and that's why they've been very secure. But there's a to, the to the Bitcoin blockchain right? hasn't been hacked.
0: You know, Robert, there's a corollary to that. Watch D- Ray Dalio, when he wrote his book about the changing world order and the principles around that, uh, published a video on YouTube where he talks about how the military industrial complex basically supports the reserve currency. Now, I would posit that the military industrial complex is infinitely more f- inefficient uh, than Bitcoin in terms of, you know, pollution, money spent. Uh, I, I read a report that says for, this is like the umpteenth audit uh, of the Pentagon where 70% of their assets remain unaccounted for. And we're talking yeah. about trillions of dollars, yeah. right? And and most of it is supposed to be accounted for in in one building and they still can't find it, right? And and, and so I would posit that this is a move towards, uh, you know, less inefficiency than the military industrial complex, yeah. uh, but it exists for a different reason right and i think and, uh, you, you know, know i think and in it's addition a,
2: transparency let's uh, let's add that because every yeah, every yeah. transaction that's on the blockchain can exactly. be audited which you can't do with the Pentagon, right the uh, Pentagon won't refuses to be audited
1: and, and you know the, the, these flaws exist in the financial system today i mean um, if we look at money laundering as an example um, you know money laundering exposure is is massive and um, even though we spend billions of dollars a year trying to stop money laundering the entire global financial system is only successful at eliminating about 1% of money laundering globally. So there are some serious functional problems, even with the fact that it's a a very mature system. And yet people have implicit trust in that system because it's centralized, because banks have charters and the central bank looks after it. But there are serious flaws in in the existing system.
2: And and let's remember what the money laundering is about. Money laundering sounds nice. You're cleaning money. That's good. It's dirty. Clean it up. But- what money laundering does is it funds terrorist groups, it funds arms right. deals, it funds drugs, it funds, it funds right. all Criminal sorts of illicit behavior, yeah, yeah.
1: human enslavement. Uh, you know, and uh, and cash, industry. cash is the primary vehicle for that. Now, you know, a lot of the criticism for, for Bitcoin and crypto is that it enables that. But the reality is that the global banking system and, you know, real estate, In cities like London and Dubai and New York are uh, an essential part of that. But, Bill, I do want to ask you um, this question. I know know you're a big fan, and I do want to get into the remittance function, um, you know, and and where Bitcoin sits in that, because the remittance business is is a massive um, issue for financial inclusion and other things as well. Um, But, you know, it, it has become clear over time. If you read the Bitcoin white paper and the intent of Bitcoin to be used as a means of value exchange uh, you know we 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 don't hear a lot about bitcoin as a means for value exchange and simple payments we hear a lot more about the value The future value of Bitcoin, and it's become speculative. So, um, you know, part of the problem is I don't know whether this is a design flaw or just you know um, the nature of of humans. But um, you know, its potential to be really a revolutionary payments uh, um, platform and and digital currency has sort of been twisted a bit because now people are so speculative in in their relationship. To, to bitcoin but do do you think that um, there, there is a way that we can solve that problem or over time is it just going to become more trusted at, at, you know more less volatile so that the speculative element disappears so so i actually believe that
0: we're already on the right path as it relates to bitcoin and maybe some competing technologies within the crypto sphere in 1976, and this obviously predates the internet, predates Bitcoin uh, by extension, uh, Friedrich Hayek wrote a book called The Denationalization of Money. And the idea was what would happen if you took government out of the fiat money printing game? This was after we were off the gold standard and fiat was basically valued based upon whatever perception or value the public decided to give, it, give to it. And if you look at that book, it has basically a, a game plan for what would happen. And Bitcoin is basically playing out that game plan to the letter. It, he predicted that money would be hoarded if it was private, right, with a fixed float, because it would be so valuable. Right, because there would be no way for any central party to just arbitrarily print more you know we have the meme in the, in bitcoin world the printer goes burr there's no more burr right uh and it would be hoarded until such time that it was so valuable that it made no more sense to hoard it anymore right and i believe that's what's playing out here there's only 21 million bitcoin but it's it's subdiv- subdivisible out to eight decimal places so you really have to think about the individual atomic units of bitcoin at scale which are these satoshis and at scale you know you you have basically billions upon billions of these satoshis but that's a fixed amount of bitcoin which is going to become so valuable at some point eventually the early holders right are going to loosen up the purse strings and say it makes no sense for me to to hoard this until and take it to the grave it doesn't it make no sense
2: okay now hang on hang on hang on but, bill i'm sorry to bust in here but yeah. We've been hearing this now for 12 years about Bitcoin, right? There's a limited number. It's a fixed amount. It should be the hardest currency in the world. And it's a hedge against inflation. It might not be a medium of exchange that people are using every day, but it definitely has long-term value as a store of value, right? We've heard that message many, many times. Well, this year we've had record inflation. And by all accounts, Bitcoin should be soaring in value. It, but it, it turns it out cracks, it didn't. It crashed. It, it crashed along extra. with the stock. so it's behaving
0: well, like a tech stop. Okay, so so a few things. Let's stop. So first of all, it's I think it's something like four to five x, actually more than five x where it was at the trough uh, before, you know, the inflation started. But even that is is irrelevant to me. Okay, Bitcoin's price is moving as an exponentially growing asset, no different than Amazon did, right? If you basically plot on a log chart its price from the whenever it went public in the late 90s to today. okay, Prices had multiple 70-plus percent drops. That is not the point. The point is, why is it an exponentially growing asset now, and what is it becoming? Okay, I don't claim that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge today. I claim that as it becomes hoarded, its value will increase to the point where nobody thinks in dollar terms anymore, because the dollar becomes irrelevant as the sound money. It has to happen. It's happened to every other fiat currency in history and you're printing your way to uh, you know, irrelevancy. And and so this is an exponentially growing asset whose adoption is growing faster than the internet did itself in the 90s on the promise that it is going to become hard money at scale. And that is clearly right. what happens to something that has a fixed float. That's why it happens with collectibles and arts and baseball cards or whatever you want. We're just doing this at global scale with a system that can actually be transferred without the need for middlemen.
2: That's never happened before. But the- so you're saying that if we zoom out and look at the long growth curve from, from 2009 to today, okay, there's occasional drops. And actually, historically, this isn't even the biggest crash that Bitcoin's had. It's the no, fifth it's not, largest actually. crash, not. percentage-wise. It's not. Uh, and the long curve continues to grow. And you're saying that's an exponential growth chart. Right. So, so hang tight, holders. No, hodlers. It's hodlers. But
0: but, 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 Robert, (laughs) those are two different issues, right? I'm not not saying that the price should be this or the price should be that. I'm saying that the exponential adoption Mm -hmm. is happening independent of the price. The money supply, the changes in money supply are what map the exponential adoption to the actual growth in price. And that's been true since the early 90s.
1: Right. let's so so Rob uh, bill let's let's we got to expand on this a little bit I, I you know I do want to you know bring back you know this is an interesting debate but um where does this get us to this is really uh, you know what we we've got to talk about but let's um how about we uh, do the quick fire round have a quick break and we can come back on that basis and talk about the future of of digital money uh, overall because I think that's what we got to get to that's the problem that bitcoin's trying to fix so how do we get there you know in the end but um let's uh, if you if you're ready for it bill we're going to be the quick fire round here we go uh what is the first instance of science fiction um that you can ever recall being exposed to star trek yeah,
0: I think uh, growing up in New York City, there was reruns of Star Trek on late night, and when I should have been sleeping, I was probably watching like you know on a black and white TV old episodes of of Star Trek, and I was all in. I was hooked. I was like, "This is unbelievable. Um, this is the future that I want." And you know, I want to be on that ship, go and exploring the world, and I want I want all those gadgets in my bedroom <laughs> basically. In the meantime,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny, isn't it? The communicator, the flip phone, yeah, you know, a lot of those things, Alexa and Siri and, you know, the computer. Yeah, there's a lot of analogies there. Um, is there a futurist or entrepreneur that you you uh, count as, as being very influential in your life? Many. Um, a
0: lot of them your audience wouldn't even know because, you know, now I'm, I'm an older guy, but, but you know, I, I mean, I worked with Mark Andreessen and Jim Clark as a kid, and and that was awesome. I mean, they, you know, Jim, Mark Andreessen was younger than me. Um, and, and you know, there were so many talented entrepreneurs that I worked with in the early days. I mean, if you look at crypto, we, there's a few of us from our Netscape days that are CEOs of crypto companies now. Uh, Brendan at the Brave, runs the Brave browser. Mike Belshi runs BitGo. Um you know, I'm running Abra, of course. And uh and and so just since then there's been so many people that have that have you know touched me and 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 whenever whenever you know you are basically dealing with with nonsense and crap that, that invariably happens and in, in, in market cycles, there's always an entrepreneur that that manages to re-excite me somehow. And uh the last few years, you know, just looking at this kind of decentralization movement and some of the, the the developers, you know, just follow the developers in my world, right? Who's coming out of MIT and working on the next the next big project in this kind of global movement towards decentralization, whether it's, you know, Ethereum or Solana and some of the other competing now Aptos and some of the competing projects in the crypto space uh, that are getting phenomenal entrepreneurial talents. And But yeah, I mean, in, in, in my life, there's been probably dozens of people that I can, you know, sit down and think of that have had a, a dramatic impact and significant influence on my life.
1: Excellent. Now, um, of course, this show is about futurists. So, is there anyone that you can? um, uh, Who do you think, uh, from a futurist perspective or a forecasting perspective, has been particularly good at making predictions about this?
0: You know, I I am a big believer in kind of this whole movement towards uh, singularity and and the growth of exponential tech and and Moore's law and, and and kind of being. Pretty damn accurate in predicting that, and I've I've come to rely on that and put disbelief aside. And so, you know, folks like Peter Diamontis and, and and Ray Kurzweil have, have been very instrumental in kind of enabling me to accept what I intuitively believe. And then at some point, it's just it's like to the early discussion Star Trek. It sounds like science fiction, and like so in the early '90s, it was very obvious to me that Moore's law was going to enable things like smartphones and and you know little video handheld uh, phones that you would carry around with you and and, and, yeah. and everything else it was science fiction, but you have to suspend the the disbelief part of science fiction and just do the math and and those
2: yeah, trending. like
0: people like Peter and Ray have been very instrumental in my life in terms of enabling me to
1: suspend that disbelief to to just do the math. All right, and a special one for this week. Last question. Who is Satoshi Nakamoto?
0: So I I did say that I don't think that Satoshi was an academic, or at least the the primary developer. I don't think it was one person. I think it was a group for different reasons. Uh, I, have you heard the theory of the four Satoshi's? The the, the the it sounds like the samurai. No, I I haven't heard the theory of the four Satoshi's. It's, uh,
1: Brock Pierce told me this, so I've, you know Brock, of course. So. Um, you know, and and he, he, he well, we, you know, we should get into this after the break well, or off, offline. But maybe you know, it's not Yeah. Yeah, you know, he, he's made that argument that you know Hal Finney had the private key, and that's why none of Satoshi's bitcoins. Yeah, are I, big.
0: I think Hal Finney was genuinely brought in right before, right after the white paper. So I don't think he was the original ideator of the idea of of blockchain and mining and and you know the individual components. But I do think and, and that he was heavily involved in rewriting a lot of the original code into C yeah. which I think pissed off Satoshi. Cool. As a non academic, I think Satoshi was probably older. And and probably came up in, in the assembly and and if you look at the way uh, the opcodes for for Bitcoin work, it some of it reminds me of the old kind of Pascal P codes and stuff like that. This was clearly somebody who came up through the assembly world and not yeah, okay. somebody who came up through modern functional programming. Um and and so that that's interesting. why I think interesting yeah. insight. Yeah. So so um but I do think okay. that there's some communications
1: that are inconsistent in terms of being one person. So I'm pretty. Yeah, no, I agree. There's different flavors of, of come in yeah. there. Yeah, listen, that, that's, that's, that's great. Thank you for your, your answer. Let's have a quick break. And when we come back, I want to get into the future of digital money and what you know. Let, let's let's play it out how do we get to the full potential of what we've been talking about with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and now, um, you know, the emergence of CBDCs and so forth. You're listening to the Futurists. We'll be right back after these words from our very kind sponsors. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist Podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the FinTech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to Provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back
2: to The Futurist. This is part two uh, with our guest this week, Bill Barhide from Abra and Bill you know one of the things I want to make sure we cover is Abra's business, what you actually do at Abra um, and I think a lot, the way that set that up is to talk a little bit about the remittances businesses. Uh, one, one thing I was surprised to learn when I lived in Asia is how much people depend on Western Union and similar services to send money back home. Uh, for instance a huge percentage of the Philippines. Uh, many of those people work in other countries and they're every month they're sending money back home. But candidly, Western Union's a ripoff, and this is an inspirational idea for people who want to disrupt an incumbent company that's highly centralized, that takes too much uh, for a service that they offer. Talk a little bit about the remittances racket. Sure. So, so money transfer is definitely uh, one part of our business.
0: We actually have uh, a retail business, a private banking and an institutional business. And I'll I'll start off addressing the, the remittance question, which was some of the things I was working on before we started Abra. And yeah, so to your point, uh, there are a few large centralized players that have basically cornered this market over multiple decades. Uh, Western Union MoneyGram and, and then there are a few kind of upstarts that have tried to take uh pieces of that. Uh, Zoom, which become which became part of PayPal and Remitly, which is a standalone company. And but they're, you know, single digit percentages of the overall space versus the the, the two large incumbents. Uh and, and some banks offer uh remittance services now. But the idea is that somebody who doesn't have a bank account or doesn't want to spend $50, $60 on wire fees or have the money take three to four days to get there via Swift uh settlement uh base settlement process can can. Can go to a retail store, uh, hand the person behind the counter some money, fill out a long form, show their ID, and based upon some internal systems at um, at, uh, Western Union, um, another window, let's say back in Mexico. Um, could be visited by the, the same family member uh, or, or a member from the same family uh, with a pickup code. And that store, Tienda, would basically hand out the equivalent of the $250 in in
2: cash in pesos. And that's the huge fee that they take off the top.
0: Yeah, right. Minus the fee, uh, you know, or the fees added on top, depending upon how you do the transaction. And in the background. What Western Union is doing is they have banking relationships all over the world, and they're using those relationships to do settlements with these uh, retailers every day. Um, and so that the retailer is handing out cash temporarily and then Western Union is making them whole minus the cuts that they have to pay them for handing out the uh, cash in the first place. So let's say that you hand out $300, they may reimburse them $305 or something like that. And the $5 being you know, a fee for basically, effectively they've lent Western Union money for a few hours while the customer has picked it up until they pay them back, okay? Now, there's actually a lot of hands in the pie here that have to get paid. There's Western Union, there's the retailer, there's the banks in the middle, Uh, in some cases there's correspondent networks. And so there's a reason why the global floor on remittance prices in extremely competitive markets is somewhere probably around 3% ish. Mm-hmm. And then in in less competitive markets in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example, the fee could approach, you know, 10%, yeah. which is an incredible amount of money. And and it's all about competition, but there is a floor because of the number of hands in the pie who won't participate for free. Okay. So so clearly in order to optimize those fees, You need to eliminate these hands in the pie. There's no other way. So the more hands in the pie you can eliminate, the lower the fee should get, right? So so Bitcoin solves a couple of these problems because you can do transfers Mm peer-to-peer, right, without the need for the banks. But the question is, how do you get the Bitcoin in on on the send side? And how do you get the Bitcoin out on the receive side? And this was one of the ideas that we had for ABRA because, in theory, most people sending money have a bank account, even immigrants, Okay. It's the recipient that does it. Mm. Okay. So if you could use something like ACH in the U.S. to buy the Bitcoin, send the Bitcoin, and then use the same cash window to effectively get the cash out, which amounts to selling the Bitcoin, you've eliminated two out of the three hands in the pie, right, in theory. So so anyway, so, so we've played with myriad versions of this. We have you know, hundreds of thousands of consumers in the Philippines and Mexico and, and Central America and parts of South other parts of India that that Bangladesh that now use this mm-hmm. to do everything from going to a window to buy stable coins that they send to other people that they then use to buy Bitcoin and speculate as savings, uh, because they they see that as a better savings model than trusting their banks. Right. A lot of the countries that we deal with have consumers who've seen their banking systems fail and confiscate their cash. So they end up using Abra as kind of an off the grid savings account. I've heard that. Which is super interesting.
2: Yeah, I've heard that. Sometimes people don't want to be paid in their local currency (laughs) if they're doing international work like on Fiverr.com or something. They'd rather be paid in some stable coin. Yep. And then we have our private banking business, which actually is the
0: fastest growing part, which is not only in the US, but even in developing markets where people are using Abra to now invest in cryptocurrencies, uh, do large transactions where they need to send money around. Uh, but in particular, we're, we're helping a lot of wealthy clients. We have kind of large stable of c- celebrities now that use Abra to manage crypto, manage their wealth. So one of the things I love about what we've built is we have super wealthy people using the same app used by poor farmers okay. in Guatemala. Yeah. I've never seen anything people. like it. And, yeah. and and crypto has been a big and like kind of leveling enabler for all of this um, and and for different reasons, right? Some people are speculating. Some people are sending money. Some people are doing payments. Some people use it as their bank accounts and, and we don't care. And then we even and have an th- institutional arm th- that services the likes of the, the Goldman's of the world.
2: There There have been some, okay, uh, cool. recently the big scandals have occurred around uh, the exchanges, right? So that's the point where we go from crypto, from the crypto world into the fiat money world. That's that's the exchange point. Does Abra compete with the exchanges? Are you like an exchange or are you do to a different function? So exchanges have what we call an order book, which basically
0: takes a bid and an ask and maps a buyer to seller. We don't run an exchange. We don't run order books. We actually route orders. Uh, so it's more like uh, the, the FX but you window. do custody. Yeah, yeah. So we more like the FX window at the airport. They're using different banks to do your exchange. And since so we use different exchanges to route those transactions. So if you want to buy Bitcoin for cash, or if you want to swap your Bitcoin to Ethereum or your Ethereum to, you know, BSC Binance token, um, Abra will do that by routing to different exchanges. Or if you wanna use your bank account to buy and sell crypto, uh, we integrate with different banks who basically process those transactions and convert the cash to stable coins for us so that we're only holding the stable coins, not the cash. Um, and then you know we have a lending business which will allow you to park uh, Bitcoin and then borrow against it, for example. Which uh, is is we have customers all over the world from that from super wealthy folks to people who you know may have saved up a thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin don't want to sell it but want to borrow fifty dollars this week, right? Um, and 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 so basically all kinds of banking functions now uh, that are centered around the crypto model
2: if you would consider Abra centralized or decentralized?
0: So, so as a company, there's no such thing as a decentralized company, right? right. So we're, we're, we're a company. So obviously we're centralized. We have an off switch um, and, and an on switch. Mostly we're generally on because we're open 24 but, seven, but we use decentralized technology to enable the services we provide to consumers and businesses. In mm-hmm. other words, we use DeFi in some places to generate yield. We use DeFi to process loans in some cases, but we also have CFI versions of lending and and yield, and we use Bitcoin and Ethereum rails to also move money around, and and so it's a it's a centralized banking entity that uses crypto decentralized rails to enable the services we provide. Okay, uh, Bill,
1: I I, I want to jump into you know in this conversation, you've talked a lot about the rails. You've talked a lot about the um, the functional disparity in the system, the need for decentralization and so forth. But what's the core problem um with fiat currencies um you know beyond the cost of sending them from a functional perspective in the world we're moving to over the next 20 you know 50 100 years what is the functional deficiency in fiat currency that that sure. crypto and and stable coins or these variants might might solve sure so so basically
0: the global banking system is this complicated hub-spoke network of central banks in different countries with large banks connected to them and smaller banks via correspondence connected to the larger banks. And and moving money around basically forces you to move from outside of the wheel into the center-spoke, then settling via another correspondence to another network in another country. And so moving small amounts of money, for for example, cross-border, is effectively impossible. Right. Because the cost of moving between those hub and spokes, if you're moving from in between networks, in other words, going from the U.S. to Germany is untenable. Okay, so so that's that's number one. Number two is even if you're doing uh, microtransactions, every country has its own system. U.S. A.C.H. UK has faster pay. Mexico has SPAY. Eurozone has SEPA, uh, all basically variants on the same thing, which basically allow you to push money um, in most cases from your bank account into some other accounts, either for a merchant or another consumer. The U.S. has a pull version of that as well, but most countries do push because it's more secure. And 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 but they're all incompatible, which is why you end up with Venmo and PayPal and different mobile money schemes and in, in, in different countries. So so there's no commonality. In any of that. We still use checks. And, then, and this is extra- Right.
1: But that but that's a problem with the piping, right? The the transmission vector. It's not a problem. It, you know, there's not a, a flaw in the design. It's well, you it's a flaw bank- in the monetary system. Sure, sure. Is money- it a flaw in money? So so
0: money and banking have their own sets of problems. Okay. The biggest problem with fiat money today is centralized control, right? Meaning, meaning you have two people in the United States that make the vast majority of the decisions on what your money is worth tomorrow. That's insane. Okay. And by the way, they're getting it wrong time after time. Right. So if you look at what's happened the last few years, they, they basically have been manipulating interest rates and the overall money supply, right, to try to control and manage an economy. And at scale, it doesn't work. That's why we have these 80 year debt cycles that Ray Dalio has been writing about, meaning by definition, 2% inflation. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that is a crazy number. Over the course of the lifetime, that eliminates the vast majority of the value of your money. That's the problem with the monetary system. What I'm also describing are the problems with the banking system. So, as I said, I think that Bitcoin and the idea of a deflationary cryptocurrency solves the problems of the monetary system. Mm -hmm. I think that smart contracts, the promise of Ethereum, uh, other competing technologies to Ethereum, solve the problems with the banking system. Those are two different things. okay? Right. The money doesn't have to be Bitcoin. It doesn't have to be dollars. It could be gold rocks. But the problems with the banking system remain. And so, so, so- it so happens that decentralization can enable the solution to both problems. And some of this infrastructure right, one is quite immature,
2: biggest... right, right? It's Sorry, it's bro. not ready for prime time. Some of this, some of this infrastructure. When you okay. say the banking system, uh, you know, it, it may be inefficient, it may be inelegant, it might not be compatible, but it works. Versus uh, the piping for the the crypto world, uh, it's still a work in progress, and that's why we see these periodic flaws. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of
0: exception to that. Talk to people in Venezuela. Talk to people in Argentina. Talk to people in Turkey. Talk to people in the Ukraine. Talk to people in Russia. The banking system and the monetary system, neither of them work in those countries. Okay. Mm. People are adopting crypto in these markets because they have no choice. Right? We'll go look at the the writings from the, the Human Rights Foundation that has been covering this and actually making donations to help people get into the system as basically a backup to the fact that their governments are confiscating their money, that they can't do cross-border transactions. Right, We have employees in the Ukraine who were were basically stuck, and the only way they could transact was with crypto. And, and so it's not just about what works for us if we're trying to ACH $1,000 in the U.S. Of course that works. Okay,
2: but we are also the people who run the system, right? And there's 140 countries that don't run the system. Right, so so the view from outside the United States is going to be significantly different than the view in the US system. Of course. Okay, but then how did how did El Salvador go so sideways, right? They lost $60 million on their attempt to make Bitcoin a national currency. Okay, so those are two different things, right? So, so
0: let's break it down. El Salvador is unique in that they're one of the few countries in the world that actually used already the dollar. Okay, so they didn't have to turn off an internal monetary system. And the people of El Salvador are very skeptical of their dependency upon the United States to do the right thing for their monetary system. Okay, Now, they still are a dollar-based system. That hasn't changed. What they said is, in parallel, we're going to run a test to use Bitcoin as a parallel currency. Now, my opinion is it was too early to do that. Uh, given all the things we talked about earlier around technology adoption, migration towards private money, I understand why they did it. I think it's a very interesting test. But if you look at the playbook that I was talking about earlier, it's too early. So I, I actually would not have done this. But they did it already. It's fine. Now they chose to also speculate on the the value of of Bitcoin versus the dollar. That may actually turn out to be the smarter. Of the two bets at scale, I realize you—you you're, know—you comment notwithstanding that the price has fallen, but but if you actually look at the value of a deflationary asset, or an ex, and or an exponentially growing technology, combined with the fact that it's valued in dollars, where the money supply historically only goes up, right? That's why stocks go up in value over time in, in mass, right? Right, is because the money supply goes up. It, it's it's got to be a good bet at scale, unless something breaks in the technology. I realize in the short term. That it doesn't look like a good bet, but that doesn't matter because they don't seem to need the money right now. So they should be holding it for 15 years anyway.
2: But anyway, okay, I, so I let's think focus I, on the future because we're right at that point now where we're talking yeah. about governments experimenting different opportunities outside the United States. Sure. Um, Brett, do you the, want to well, ask a question? You know,
1: the, well, you know, the central bank digital currency development we're, we're talking about here it, it, is it. You know, is, even though that is programmable money, even though it can be used for underpinning smart contracts potentially and things like that, which is a, a big key part of automating the world, supply chain automation and, and so forth, improving cross-border trade, seems like it's still going to be fraught with these functional issues of the system that you have, right? Because if you have lots of different geographically-based CBDCs, you get the same difficulty you have in the current system, particularly for Forex and so forth. However, there is a lot of conversation now about regional CBDs. You see China doing a partnership and a bridge between the Hong Kong uh, Monetary Authority and and the Central Bank in in China for creating a bridge. So it could be that we see these pan-regional CBDCs emerge, and for from a wholesale trading perspective, it would give these central banks some continuity, and it would solve many of the problems you're talking about. So, when we talk about this future world, smart contracts, supply chain mechanics, and so forth, where is the advantage um, that that crypto and and these and these tokens have versus um, what's emerging out of this, the central bank uh, prototypes of CBDCs? Okay, so there's three things you need to understand in my opinion about this idea of a central bank based
0: digital currency. And 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 the first point that I would make is relative to where we are today as a planet. We are in a late stage debt cycle. Unless this time is different versus the last 700 years, we are in a late stage debt cycle. And Bretton Woods was the whole idea to, the, to that to the victor goes the spoils and the victor was us and we defined a new monetary system. That system slowly fails once you reach the peak cycle, which we reached in the 60s. okay, It was exacerbated by Vietnam, which is why we came off the gold standard, and many smarter people than myself have written about it. At the end of that debt cycle, the world is forced to take sides because the bond markets start to break, debt becomes untenable, right? and the bond markets are invariably what lead to these world wars and new debt cycles. Follow the money. Now, it just so happens but that's point one is that we are in a late so stage that's cycle. position. Exactly. Right? And 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 but but independent of central bank digital currencies, the world is forced to choose sides, settling oil in rubles, uh, you know, looking at, at China, basically forcing other, other trading partners to use the digital yuan, et cetera, et cetera. Point two is that it just so happens that the technology for creating these central bank digital currencies it now exists at the same time that the world is being forced to choose sides, which is something we didn't have before in previous debt cycles. Okay, Now, that's interesting because it makes it much easier in many cases for non-US trading partners to be pushed by China into this using this currency for settlement. And but hang on why
1: shouldn't China do that? They're going to be the biggest economy in the world they shortly. They from they they already, you know, in terms of um you know f- the financial system, um Chinese banks um have twice the t- tier 1 capital of you- uh, banks in the US. They have twice the assets of the banks. If you're looking at the global banking system, it's all China, right? They've got the largest uh, fintech, the largest wallet ecosystem. Um you know Alipay and Tencent WeChat Bay do twice the volume of all the plastic card schemes in the world right so if you're looking at the future of banking it's in china it's not in the us the us has already lost that battle sure so so that may very well be true
0: and i i i agree with most of those points and but the point the, the most important point here being that the world is going to be forced to, to take sides regardless it just so happens that we have this new technology happening at the same time and if i'm china what you're saying makes perfect sense as an American, I have major concerns with this. But as an American, I have major
1: concerns. But America's done the same thing, hundred percent of the world.
0: That's the whole idea of the "to the victor goes the spoils." That's the whole idea of the military-industrial complex was to use navy ships to make sure that the money basically maintained its value because the commerce could continue to happen. That was the whole idea of all of this. That's and as an American, I, I accepted that that there was no other way. And we exported democracy, and and that was the, the the price for all of this. That's why we police the world. I totally get it, but that leads to point three, which is what is going to happen vis a vis this adoption, because there's two end games. Well, okay, so the first end game for CBDCs is basically like it's an interim solution, because you're, all you're doing is putting a a, a very pretty uh, a cone of paint coat of paint on a dilapidated house, because it doesn't prevent them from increasing the money supply another hundredfold, which is what they're gonna do. Whether it's paper money, electronic settlement via the Fed, CBDCs in your smartphone, it makes no difference. The money supply is just gonna continue to explode. All, that, all this does is it says, okay, the Fed can make payments directly into people's bank accounts. Um, they can monitor what you're doing, which is a big concern, right? They can't do that with Ethereum. But they can if they make their own blockchain for this stuff, right? They can't do that with paper money. That's a big concern. But again, this third point that I want to make is it's just an interim solution because the money system is breaking anyway.
1: Whether okay, it's- so so this gets to the heart of it. This is the futurists, after all. Yeah. So then let's go big picture. Fifty sure. years out, right? You know. Um, you know, what does it look like? How has this system resolved itself? If you were, I mean, obviously we're experimenting with all of this now, but what is the end game? Is it self-sovereign currencies or combined with self-sovereign identity? You know, you know, how does this all wash out? So Put the I, futurist so head on. I'll,
0: I'll give you my take on money and then I'll give you my take on, on banking. I think for, in terms of existing monetary systems, the vast majority of fiat currencies are going to fail. You've got what, 150? I think 135 of them will be gone within 20 years. And I'm not exaggerating. Might even I think that's cas- fair. Yep. Once it happens, it's going to, the cascading effect, it's going to be like, whoa, what happened? All right. You're going to end up with dollars, euros, uh, maybe yen, uh, pounds. Um, you might even get the Deutsche Mark reintroduced if the eurozone falls apart. And and obviously the RMB. And, and, and con- countries will be asked to take sides as part of this fourth turning that I think is coming. And that will be for mostly for ephemeral transactions, meaning that we have to settle the transaction somehow. But for actual storage of wealth, none of these currencies are going to succeed because they're inflationary by nature. You need a deflationary asset at scale with the fourth turning, which is what we did post Brent Woods. We needed a deflationary currency, so we created one and collected all the world's gold in order to do that. Well, now we don't need to do that because Bitcoin gives us the same effect. I don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin, but it is going to be a deflationary digital currency. I, I don't see any other way out. Why of can't
1: it, it be? A, why can't it be a carbon coin which prioritizes the environment over actually monetary value? Maybe, but it
0: has to solve. Why don't we problem. come
1: up with a different value exchange system? It could. It could be a competing technology. All I'm saying is, is if it,
0: it has to solve the problems that I'm describing, because yeah. okay either either it doesn't either it solves the problems i'm describing or this is the first time in hundreds of years that it doesn't all right
1: okay. last because, question so saying, it-
0: yeah and then on the banking side i believe that the banks which are closed more than they're open are moving towards a global decentralized always on system with no off switch where all of these myriad regulators are going bye bye there's no yeah, way it's going to be just ai based incorrect ai Correct. But, but blockchain, all kinds of global settlement systems, et cetera, et cetera. I, I totally agree with you there. And, and that's going to happen faster than the other part with the monetary systems.
2: Let's talk about a computable economy. That's one of the things that some folks have gotten very excited about with the advent of cryptocurrencies, the idea that you can now have visibility into all the transactions and thereby compute an economy, a radical concept. I don't really know if I have my brain wrapped around it, but I'd be curious to hear your perspective about the long-term implications of that as more and more transactions move into the crypto Well, space. it's just a smart economy needs smart money, right?
1: It needs oh, programmable What money. does that
2: mean? They'll put some substance behind well, it. Well, okay, so so
0: you have to break it down, right? So the, the, the challenge with crypto markets this year have been that the decentralized technology has worked flawlessly. The yeah. centralized entities have been a disaster.
2: That's so, right.
0: So centralized entities rehypothecate, and and if you go back in history to the banking problems of the last thirty years, it's been leverage, right? And rehypothecation is the process for enabling the leverage in, in a centralized entity. Meaning you meaning you're borrowing borrowed money, effectively.
2: Or effectively, that's what FTX did, right?
0: well there's also fraud there in terms yeah. of actually moving money around but you're but you're basically taking collateral and reusing the collateral it's two kind of two, coin, two okay. sides of the same coin and and so the idea of of these, these this defi model is that if you eliminate if you eliminate the centralized entities and i and i, I say that knowing that i'm one of them that in theory that rehypothecation or over leverage can't be stopped but you know it's happening whereas with long term capital management I've heard stories where all the largest lenders to LTCM didn't know that they were no. all the largest lender to LTCM, and they were reusing the same damn collateral over and over again. Right. This is exactly what happened this year with Three Arrows and, you
2: know, the- it sounds, Kess- sounds like collateralized debt obligations, right? Exactly. It's the Those same It show. sounds yeah. a lot like it, it's, it's a systemic was problem. the
0: same thing. That has nothing to do with crypto. That has to do with centralized actors trying to manipulate the system- to use leverage to make more money when, when the government is printing money, mm-hmm. right? And and okay, so okay. the promise of DeFi is we can't necessarily stop that, but we can see that it's happening.
1: All right. Well, listen, um, in the interest of time, we have run over, and I'm respectful of your time, Bill, but I, I just want to ask you one final question. Sure. 30, 50 years out big picture futurist this time not about crypto not about the banking system um what makes you bullish on the future if all of these you know obviously clearly painful elements are coming with this conflict between china and us and these you know collapse of these systems w- you know what makes you um really positive about the future of hum- humanity over the the, yeah. the emerging decades
0: honestly it's technology i think we're we're approaching this this I, this convergence is happening, which is amazing to me that it's happening at the same time that we're we're basically nearing the end of this debt cycle, meaning that we're less than fifteen years away from reaching a singularity moment in in computational capabilities, where computers will be able to solve problems in in ways that we never thought of, and we have no idea what the implications of that are because we we can't solve those problems, and so we're about to enter an age. Of artificial intelligence and combined with decentralization and democracy, which is spreading now, all I, bets I, are off. Right, all and bets are off. I just yeah, don't yeah. see that ending poorly. I actually see it ending really well. And 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 pretty- uh,
1: well, I'm i have the I'm of the abundance and post scarcity you know theory on this as well. I know Robert and I've had this conversation on numerous episodes of the show, but um, I I think AI is going to usher in incredible benefits for Humanity because of all those things you talked about yep Bill it's it's look it's great to chat with you again very lively um conversation and uh thanks again how do people uh, follow you know you personally and keep in touch with what you're doing at Abra yeah sure so I'm
0: uh, Bill Barheitz on Twitter try to be reasonably active even though I have a, a day job uh, you can also follow Abra Abra Global on Twitter. And obviously you can sign up for Abra at Abra.com. And, you know, we want to be basically everybody's one-stop shop for basically, you know, buying access to crypto, moving money around, whatever, whatever it is you want to do. We want to, we want to basically help you do it.
2: Super. Well, Bill, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. You've given us really good answers to some complex questions. You clarified the matter for me. Thanks for that. Thanks for joining The Futurist this week. And I want to give a shout out to the folks that work on the show, Kevin Hirshhorn, our engineer and producer, Elizabeth Severance, who's also a producer, and the friendly folks at Provoke Media who help us make the show and distribute the show. Uh, The show's doing great, and uh, if you're enjoying these conversations, I would really, really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review. That helps other people find the show. And the good news there is it's working. Uh, The show's been growing rapidly. Dare I say, it's growing at an exponential rate. It's going up every week. The (laughs) number of downloads, listeners, uh, it's on every platform now. It's insane, right? And it's uh, approaching the number one futurist podcast in the world. We're very thrilled about the progress and we appreciate it greatly when folks give us feedback about guests we should invite, topics that we should cover, questions that we should ask. We welcome that and we encourage it. And so we want to thank all of you for doing that. Uh, So please do give us a shout out if you can, uh, and that would help us a great deal. And we will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.